0: If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com backslash FPA. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. If you would like to earn continuing education credit for your FPA certification from the Association of Finance Professionals for listening to the show, go to the show notes for details on how to earn the credit finally if you enjoy listening to fpNA today please go to your podcast platform of choice click the subscribe button and leave a rating and review of the show and now on to the show from Data
1: Rails, this is fpNA today
0: hello everyone welcome to fpna today I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, a.k.a. the FP&A Guy. FP&A Today is brought to you by DataRels, the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Jim Cook. Jim, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Paul. Super excited to be here.
0: Really excited to have you. So I'll give you a little bit about Jim's background, and then we'll give him an opportunity to introduce himself a little further. So he comes to us from the Bay Area in California. He studied finance at USC. Go Trojans, right?
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) He's been a CFO of multiple companies. He currently runs his own consulting practice, and he has a long history of joining companies during the startup phase, including well-known companies such as Netflix and Intuit. And before I give him an opportunity to tell us a little bit about his background, we're going to start with a fun question here first. So thinking over your career, what's the worst budgeting experience you ever had?
1: Uh, that's That's a good one. Basically not having one and the company not knowing how to run one saying, so Jim, just run the annual budget. And they had no clue and didn't really want to run an annual budget. They just wanted a spreadsheet. It, very early days at some of these companies, it's like that.
0: And so what what made that so bad? Why is that such a big problem?
1: Oh, they just expect one person to produce all the numbers. And the opposite could be you know. We'll probably get into this later, but but the opposite is really, as as we all know, most of your audience probably knows, is exactly what we don't want. We want creators of these numbers and these departments to own the numbers, not just give me my budget. But give me my budget is a big problem.
0: 100% agree. I mean, because then you get into a meeting and it's, oh, I didn't sign up for that number. I don't recognize that number. And it's always finances fault every time anything goes wrong. So it's almost kind of creating that culture that says, We don't have to take responsibility if we're not involved.
1: The word culture there is perfect. That is exactly how I think about it. The culture of finance and the culture of a financial partnership is something that I talk a lot about, and I'm sure you do too.
0: Yeah, and we'll we'll definitely get into that. What was the one key takeaway from that experience that you took with you?
1: Uh, Start early, start often, partner deeply with Uh, The people that are running the company in every functional area to be their partner and to not be the finance corporate policeman, but rather really be their right hand partner for everything that they want to know about finance and bring them the answers and bring them insights and, and develop a relationship with them. Because if you start there then the budgets just flow and and you can help them own their numbers. But from what the one takeaway, the big takeaway I had early in my career, I think most people have it, is this aha moment when you realize that the head of engineering or the head of marketing or the head of sales didn't study finance at school, <laughs> hates finance and hates budgeting and, and doesn't want to admit it, that they don't know much about it. And so they hide behind their, their uh, lack of knowledge of finance and just want you to do it all for them which is really detrimental to them and their career and it's detrimental to uh, the partnership and to the company at large. And so breaking down that wall and getting them to admit what they know, what they don't know, helping them understand what you can bring them and the insights you can bring them, that's the real starting point that a lot of people skip, but you have to start there.
0: Totally agree. That's a great point on that. So now we'll give you an opportunity. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you uh, ended up where you're at today?
1: Yeah, I'm a Midwest kid. Um, I grew up in Ohio. Um, and so small town Ohio, where uh, I lived on 40 acres and had a lot of freedom. So I think I was t- talking to somebody about this the other day. I think that produces a lot of creativity. Uh, you have to make you have to figure out what you're going to have fun doing today with with not a lot of friends around with a lot of with a lot of acreage. And I think that breeds a certain type of entrepreneur. And so I've been told I'm a different kind of CFO. And uh, I didn't study to be a CFO. I actually, you said study finance at SC. I actually got a scholarship to uh, USC in the engineering school. Uh, that's, they sent me a letter my senior year saying, we want you to come. Really interesting. So I studied engineering aerospace for two years, but I didn't really want to be an engineer. I wanted to be a doctor. And so I, re- I didn't even realize you couldn't be a doctor. There wasn't a, a, a pre-med major. There's only nine classes in the MCAT. So I was doing... Engineering, nine classes in the MCAT, and then I decided I didn't want to be a doctor, and I ended up doing the five-year plan like many people do and uh, studied finance and fell in love with the people, the concepts. I was obviously really good at math. And so that's my that's my journey. I got recruited up from there to Silicon Valley to work for a defense contractor um, in the late 80s, 89 actually, Ford Aerospace.
0: I, I worked in the defense industry. That's where I started my career. So
1: Great foundational... Um, the CSSE, government accounting, you know, cost schedule, system control criteria, trained in that, certified in that, variance analysis. It was eight-week program, fresh out of school. I thought this was the way it was. But in government programs, you, I was required to track every six-minute increment, not only for myself, my department, but everyone else with 0.1 time cards that got punched into computers and things. I was literally dying. It was, it was suffocating. When I got the call from a good friend up in Silicon Valley, I was in the Valley, saying, you got to come work for this company. It's called Intuit. It's a 100% company at the time. And we're hiring our first finance person. I jumped at it. And then I, much like business finance, understanding finance at USC, I fell in love with the whole commercial aspect of software and I never looked back. So the journey's been, you know, I basically got three, spent five years at Intuit, but probably... 15 years equivalent of having everything thrown at me. I wasn't married. I was um, probably working 16, 18 hours a day. We went public. They threw the S1 at me and said, you have to lead this and write it and draft it and work with the lawyers and work with the... It's just how it worked. Uh, My CFO, who's brilliant, Eric Dunn, was off coding Quicken for Windows. And he's like, you have to sit in the, uh, you know, exec staff meetings on my behalf. You have to sit in the board meetings and take notes. I I wasn't a leader by any means. I was just the, the kid in the back room but I was in every single meeting at a 100-person company. By the time I left, we had gone public, we had acquired many companies, we acquired ChipSoft. We were 3,500 people, five business units, and and we were a public company that was worth $4 billion. And so the growth of 100 people to 3,500 people from IPO M&As was just tremendous learning at the right age, right time, at the right stage of Silicon Valley, 1991 to 1996. So I left Intuit, joined one of the first e-commerce startups. There were only three, Internet Shopping Network. There was Amazon, CD Now, and ISN. It lasted about a year and a half before Barry Dealer sold it. And then I got another call from an Intuit colleague saying, "Hey, you're the only e-commerce expert we know." In 1997, I'd been doing it for a year and a half, and that company was Netflix. First six, well, I was I was brought in to be the expert, you know, in all things finance, ops for not the Netflix you know today. I have to remind people this was 25 years ago. We just celebrated the 25th anniversary last year. But it was the disk shipping company, which there's been books written about. Netflix versus the world is a great documentary on it, Amazon. And um, yeah, so it's just a great story of, again, scaling a company, learning, designing the envelopes, shipping the envelopes, knowing anything, everything about the USPS Postal Service, but really hands-on. I guess I'm a hands-on, I'm really hands-on, really curious, really operational, have a finance background, my third company, many companies, but the third major company was Mozilla Firefox. I got a call again from the network, uh, my personal network, saying we need help. And there were 18 people there. And we they had just launched Firefox 1.0 in 2005 when the browser market was dead. And we rebirthed the browser market from zero. Microsoft had 99% market share of the browser market in 2005. And we said there's a better way. And so I've just been at the inception points of, and had three looks at, three companies that have scaled pretty well with so many lessons learned. And, and now I'm doing, I'm just trying to give back as many lessons as possible. Best practices, best ofs, it's how my brain works. What I met you with, we'll get into this, at the, I'm sure, at the OG conference. Uh, we talked about the best ofs and the best practices turning back, and I think that's where we connected.
0: It totally was. Thank you. Great story and some, some great names, right? Intuit, Firefox, and Netflix. Anyone who knows Silicon Valley recognizes those three companies for sure. So this next section is kind of fun one we do and we're gonna see if we can hold you to this you get no more than 30 seconds to answer each question
1: perfect I can do that
0: what is something interesting about you something we wouldn't find online that not many people know
1: I'm a really good billiards player other people know it as pool uh, I won I, I I grew up in Ohio I'm I'll, I'll promise only 30 seconds seven years uh, in winter times and I won a bunch of championships at school and um, outside of school, and uh, I just happen to be really good at billiards.
0: There we go. I had no idea, so that, that's a good one. If you could meet one person in the world, dead or alive, who would you meet and why?
1: Oh, boy. Um, I'm a big history buff. I would go back in history, and I would probably want to meet someone like Nikola Tesla or some technologist uh, just to follow them around. All right, It would definitely be an inventor. Maybe I'd go all the way back to Leonardo da Vinci. He invented a bunch of things. But an inventor, I'd want to follow them around forever.
0: That would be fun to follow them around and see how they think and what they came up with. I like that one. So this next question is, what is the last thing either you Googled, looked up on YouTube, or used generative AI, ChatGPT, Bard, whatever, to uh, understand something about you know finance, FP&A, Excel?
1: Well, I, I, you just you stole the thunder, right? So I, I just did this the other day. I, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to use Copilot and you know Gen AI with Excel and how to actually generate Excel without using Excel using Copilot and AI. Just talking to the computer. It's fascinating to me.
0: It, yeah, it is. It's amazing. So Copilot, I like it. Um, so what's your favorite Excel function or feature? Is it Copilot?
1: It is now, but uh, before it used to be. Oh man, I used to be so, this is really old school, right? When pivot tables were a thing and no one knew how to use them now, it's like second nature, but it used to be pivot tables. But this, but as they've morphed it into scraping data off the internet and all of the ability to scrape data, uh, HTML into tables and codes and how to actually automate that is just amazing.
0: I like it. All right, so next question here, we talked briefly about this, right? You and I met at the uh, OG Summit. So could you maybe talk a little bit of why you're such a big supporter of the Operators Guild, maybe how that's helped you in your career?
1: Well, one reason is, and we've touched on this, I'm at the stage of my career where I'm really passionate about giving back. I consider myself extremely lucky. I guess luck is a matter of being at the right place at the right time and working hard. Um, and I recognize that I lo- I have has exposed to so much at Intuit, Netflix, and Mozilla. And I really have a brain and a passion and I love teaching to give back and to share with who whoever will listen, best ofs. Uh, and that's what the Operator's Guild is all about. I see a lot of people who I recognize as me, both men and women, operators who are 30 years, 20, 30 years my younger, and I see myself and I see them in me, and I'm like, okay, if I could teach them, if I can just plant a couple seeds of wisdom so they don't have to take 10 years to learn what I took me 10 years to learn, maybe I can help them with learning it in one year. That'd be tremendously satisfactory to me.
0: That's a wonderful thing when you have someone, a mentor, that can help you learn a lesson that you know took you forever to learn. I mean, I have my share where I'm like, man, if they can learn not to go through this pain, they'll be a lot better off than I was. I mean, there's some things you have to learn the hard way, but there's so many you don't. <laughs> you can learn from others and avoid that pain. So I, lo- I love that and I agree with you. I mean, I'm getting the opportunity to give back more and it's a lot of fun.
1: Absolutely.
0: You've joined a number of early stage startups obviously, as we've talked about it. What do you love about that stage? What's, what do you find so enjoyable? Uh,
1: the building. I, I think it's the creativity and the autonomy of you have this general vision, but not a precise vision, both at the company level and at the functional level that your subject matter expertise is. And you have the ability, unlike larger companies, to bring the best systems of the day in and without, without a lot of risk and so you're constantly dealing what's the best system to install in finance or operations or IT, whereas all these other systems already exist at these other companies. So you're always on the cutting edge, you're always creative, and you're working toward a vision of, of and you're a builder. And you're always asking why and, and what and how and, and trying to actually produce a product. When you start with zero or, or not a lot, you're actually producing a product that hopefully will live on for years to come. And, and you're building it. You're building Like when I installed Oracle at Intuit, we were on Borland Paradox or Quattro Pro database. <laughs> and we were on Quicken, <laughs> honestly. And we need an actual ERP. You know, I'm the one that had to go get the vendor, install it, structure it, configure it. It lived on for a while. It may still live on today. I'd ha- i have to check. But you're kind of known for the systems and how you meet the customer with your system and how you actually get things done faster and more efficiently. I love that part of it.
0: I can tell you, you love the building and the figuring things out and putting putting things in place that can last versus just coming in and following a process, so to speak.
1: Yeah, it's a dance, right? And so this is, this is what I'm doing with my current practice is, sure, there's best practices and there's frameworks and there's models, but everything has to be customized and created uh, custom for that company. And, and that is fun because you're actually taking a foundational element of best of, and you're creating something new from it that is probably better for that company.
0: Yeah, I can see that's a lot of fun. I, uh, you know, when I started my career, I always wanted to work in startups. And so of course, first place I went to work was the government in defense, cause I couldn't find a job. And I'm like, this is definitely not entrepreneurial here, you know, in the traditional sense. And, Every time I graduated, I graduated in a bad recession, you know, 2008, 2001, September 11th, you know, those type of things. And so I always ended up getting a job at a big company. And, you know, it's kind of funny now running my own business because now I'm getting to work with small companies all the time. And I've really enjoyed that. It's always felt where it'd be a better fit for me. And it just took a little longer than I planned to get there. I can relate to that. So next question here for you. This is one I saw on your uh, profile. You know, when you were at Netflix, you were involved in the creation of the famous Red Envelope. I definitely remember those back in the day, so tell us about that.
1: Well, first of all, it wasn't read at the beginning, and second of all, we were making it up from scratch, and we used to have two I could probably go on for a couple of hours on this, but I'm going to point people I'm going to point people to a couple of books, Netflixed by Gina Keating. That will never work by our CEO um, and co-founder Mark Randolph, and then the documentary uh, Netflix versus the World. But I'll, I'll, you know I'll, go, I'll give you a minute or two here. The envelope was a creation. Well, the envelope is just the product that had to get through the U.S. postal system. So the, the actual design of the envelope, which took us 150 versions, To figure out how to, even though, once I figured out, went into the U.S. post office and there were, and these are giant 200,000 square foot and more uh, general mail facilities because they run in a hub and spoke. The post office you go into is not the post office that runs all the mail. It's it's an Amazon warehouse with massive machines, a 40,000 letter envelope per minute drum sorter with these gigantic wheels spinning at massive rpms to its whole job is to separate two envelopes that might be sticking together well you can imagine if your disc went through that machine it would be dead and yet if you don't design your envelope in a exact perfect way based on their specifications and everything was spec'd out in the government this is a government-based entity with with big controls Everything gets dumped into a uh, gigantic conveyor belt on the end of the loading dock from these big semi trucks. Everything from a package to to a, to a small envelope, everything. And then a bunch of conveyor belts sort this mail into 15 different machines. One, you know, and based on the specifications of the of the size of the envelope. You don't build your envelope right, it gets into that 40,000 drum roller. It's gone. And so you had to build it, and then you had to build it backwards, and then you had to, you know, 150 versions later because we had to print the outside of the envelope a certain way. We had to print the inside of the envelope a certain way. Uh, we used to ship two envelopes, and then we figured out I was um, opening my mailbox one day for those real old timers might remember AOL, and we used to all get these uh, DVDs in the mail for free internet. So instead of throwing it out one day, because we would be throwing dozens of these out every week, something caught my eye and I opened it. This is when we were shipping two different envelopes, one, one to go out, one to come back. And as I opened it, I realized it was a new design with the perforation on it, and they had printing on the inside and outside, and it was just this aha moment. I needed to look to, this was the answer. How to create a perforated envelope where you can, now we all know how this works, because we were making it up as we went. You tear off the front, and it's pre-printed. Anyway, for those who remember the envelope experience. So that, that's the story of, of envelopes.
0: Great. And I, I kind of have to laugh as you're talking about that. I obviously didn't go to the post office a lot, but I support supported a direct mail business is one of the businesses when I worked at a company. We sent out you know 50 million pieces of mail a month, so I learned a lot about forecasting all the different rates and commingling. And this is a postcard. This is this size. This is that, and it costs this. And is it expedited? I don't. You know, people don't have a clue how many different rates there there are back in there. And when you get into bulk mail. I mean, I know you could appreciate that because you're doing bulk mail. It's a whole different animal.
1: Bulk mail, business reply envelope in dishes. Uh it's, it's one ounce versus two ounce rates. It's the weight matters, right? And designing the envelope to get under one ounce was critical. It was back then 32 cents ounces to for first class mail. But we were the only company, e-commerce company in 1997, and, and, and probably still today, they just shut down the DVD business, but until last year, in which 100% of your product went out, was returned. Back in the day of e-commerce and still, if 2% or 3% of your product is returned, you lose a ton of margin you might be out of business. This was a business that had to ship out 100% of their product and try to get 100% back. Never been done before.
0: You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back-and-forth updates, you never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there, stop, breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex. Consolidating everything into one place. Secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up-to-date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel. Embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. Fast forwarding now to 2023, when you left Netflix in 1999, did you expect it to become what it is today? Are you surprised with how big it is and what it's doing?
1: Uh, Well, not only did I not expect it to be as big as it was, but the principals and Reed himself, who is still there, did not expect it to be this big, no matter what they tell you. And this is well covered in in the books and the documentary. Like I have to, for those that have seen the books or, 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 or the movie, it's very well laid out and it's all over the internet that Netflix tried to sell itself to Blockbuster, not once, not twice, but three times for $50 million. And Blockbuster laughed at them Uh, in the face and said, you guys aren't worth it um, all the way up until 2002, 2001, prior to them going public in 2002. And in fact, not a lot of VCs would give Netflix any money until in, in the very last round before the IPO, very few people know this, was a subordinated debt round because no VC would give the company any money in 2002. That was a bad time. Thank God TCV, you know, technology crossover venture stepped in, saw something in the assets of the DVDs, saw the cash flow potential, saw the subscription potential. But without TCV stepping in, you wouldn't have a Netflix today. I was told everyone, we were all the originals were told we were crazy to even start this company. This is the dumbest thing we've ever seen. So it's a great lesson for startups because don't let the naysayers get you down is, is an article I wrote, uh, probably 2007, five lessons I learned from Netflix. You can probably still find it on the internet. It's super old. But Don't let the naysayers get you down out there and start a plan. If if you know your customer, if you're super close to your customer, if you build something that they want, they will come and they will stay. The closer you are to your customer, the better it is.
0: Great lesson there. And I love that story. And it reminds me a little bit, and I'm not sure many people know this, but the early days, PayPal approached American Express and they offered the company for a million dollars. American Express said, no thanks. What would have been the perfect fit with American Express today? PayPal, because they, the digital area, they've kind of, they've, they've lagged in compared to some of their competitors. And it's just that lesson that little passes and how they can be so much bigger than we think. You just never
1: know. You should do a whole podcast on, on that because the origin stories, many people don't realize is that Mark Zuckerberg was faced with the billion dollar question in 2009 or 10, I believe, because Yahoo offered to buy them for a billion dollars. And he went around to all his advisors and, and everyone that he knew in the Valley said, should I sell? Should I sell? Because they weren't worth anywhere close to a billion dollars. So this would have been a huge payout. They were maybe worth... A hundred million, fifty million dollars back then, but Yahoo just wanted to own it. And Mark said, "Nope, I think um, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna take the shot, and I think I can build it long term, much lo- much more valuable than a billion dollars." It was a big risk. He was told by so many, his take the money and run."
0: I, I would have, I'll admit it, I would have taken the money and ran. Love those stories there, but we're gonna kind of switch gears a little bit here to a subject I know you're also passionate about, beyond building, and really get into some of the FP&A and and you know, one of the areas I know you have a passion for and that's talked a lot about today that in the past wasn't talked about as much is business partnering. And I know you believe it is an area in finance has room to really improve on. So the two part question here for you. The first is, what does business partnering mean for you? How do you define it?
1: I love this question because it took me a while to really explain to people. And I finally condensed it, which really resonates with people this way. For my finance team, for my accounting team, for my operational teams that that have reported into me, two ways. You are the CEO of your product. I tell everyone who works with me and for me, no matter what function they're in, and I want this to expand across the whole company. Everyone has a product. Everyone has a customer. And when you start thinking about you're the entrepreneur of your product, you're the CEO, the owner of your product. An example would be an accounts payable person plugging stuff into accounts payable, their product is the data that goes into the chart of accounts that the controller takes and that the accountants, the senior accountants take and make sure that it's gap ready and that it was uh, coded to the right account. It's like your, pro- your product is how good your data is and you're not making mistakes and your customer is, is your accounting department and eventually your customer is the CFO and the board because you only want to put it in once. But everyone has a product and everyone has a customer and when you can change this realization for people what is your product who is your customer how do you make your product better faster more convenient so who is fpna's product fpna's product i think it doesn't have to be a tangible thing i believe fpna's products are the insights derived from the data and the decision making recommendations that someone who sits at the intersection of data is immersing themselves with and the people that they're delivering their reports to aren't living in the data every day, your job is not the spreadsheet. Your product is not the spreadsheet. Your product are the three or four key insights of that report and maybe some recommendations how to course correct and developing that relationship to figure out how to grow the company. The company in this case is maybe the engineering department. The company in this case because you're partnering with the CEO of engineering at this point, or the CEO of marketing, if you're an FP&A person for marketing. So if you think of yourself in FP&A as the CFO, the mini CFO of the CEO of marketing, and you're on that team, it just changes the whole thought model about an FP&A person. And it really expands people's thinking about, let's get better software that's more efficient. Let's use chat. How can I deliver my information faster, uh, more timely? with more insights, with more colors, with more graphs, you start thinking this way. You're not just delivering a report and going home and having a beer.
0: I love the way you said that. And I'll explain why. You know, kind of my thinking is, you know, when I first thought product, I think, all right, well, we deliver the budget, right? We deliver the reports. And you you start thinking maybe insights, but you start thinking of the tangible things. And I love what you said there. It's the insights and the recommendations. Even if you don't deliver the report that month, which you know, in some cases, that can be a real problem. But if you deliver insights that drives value and you're giving the recommendations, you're being a good partner because you're creating value for the business. It may never look at that report. So it's really those insights. I think that's what people miss so often. And a good example is take variance commentary. So often, all we do is write out what happened. I can figure out what happened by looking at the PL for the most part on my own. Yes, you're telling me, well, this, this line or that. But most business owners, the partners, the head of marketing or whatever, just going to look at that and go, okay, what does that mean? And so I've loved the framework of tell them what happened and then give them the so what or give them the you know now, the so what and the now what, right? So what does that mean for me? And then now what should I do?
1: I'm going to add one for you, Paul, why it happened. If you can challenge yourself about why it happened, or at least have a hypothesis about why uh, the data was a surprise. Now you're being curious about the numbers and then you can expand on to, well, what if? What if, and this is the scenario analysis, what if we change this key metric? What if we can improve this key metric? What if we invested in th- this other activity to improve this metric? Now you're acting like a CFO. Now you're not just an FP&A person.
0: I love the why. That's a great, and I've had some of those conversations, like, well, why do you think that is? And some of the best conversations I've had with the business have been when we're discussing that why, because you often get insights and revelations you wouldn't get otherwise. Like we were asking, why are some of our salespeople struggling so much? And i had done a ton of analysis. And what we found is pretty much every salesperson that was performing really well had soft leads to sell into. We had a big program where the leads were coming to them, We had others that were mostly selling into ones where we had some kind of relationship with, you know, the big dealer groups or or things that gave them an in, and they weren't just you know field sales trying to do cold calls. And so it was a good moment where, okay, that explains some of the why. Now, how do we fix that? How do we help ensure everybody has some of that and improve the numbers? And it was just a really good eye-opening moment with the business. I still remember having the conversations with some of the strategic leaders at the time when we. You know, brought that to their attention.
1: I'm going to also suggest that's very easy for us to say at our our stage of our career, but I remember being the FPNA not to do upon a guy, but the person, the FPNA person. So so all of that is required that we just spoke about, but having the courage to show up that way is the huge blocker for most young FPNA people. Oh, I couldn't communicate that that way. I couldn't even if I knew why, I'm not sure I'd be comfortable making the recommendation. Finding the courage and finding the courage to be connected on a personal and a relationship level with people that are much more experienced than you because fp people are generally younger. That's the hard work. Some of the best FP&A people, the best insights, if they don't communicate it, the why, and they're not courageous enough to communicate the why, will hold you back. So I'm just gonna talk to all your audience and say, find the courage, find the courage and just try it.
0: I love that because it's so true. I can remember early in my career where like you're in a meeting and you hear something, I could tell you what the problem is, but you're, you're not willing to speak up. You're like, but now I don't have the courage to tell you what the problem is. I'll just let you keep droning on.
1: But you're comfortable saying I, I knew it and I told you so. <laughs> and you have this little passive aggressive, but I've been there. These people are idiots, but it's your, you have to take ownership of the fact that you're not speaking up and you're part of the problem by not sharing your point of view. One of my big mantras, you, you, I don't know if you're going to ask this question, but you have to lead with a point of view in any position you're in. And you have to communicate your point of view. You can't just be doing a job. You have to have a, you have to have a point of view.
0: I still remember the advice, and this was probably less than 10 years ago now. I'd switched companies and the VP looked at me goes, if you want to, people to start respecting you and feel like you have that seat at the table, give it your opinion. You know, make sure you're giving a point of view. People will listen because you're willing to speak up. You know, he's also, you want to make sure you know what you're talking about. Don't just talk to be talking because they'll notice what you're saying. And if you've, if you're well thought of and you have good ideas in what you're saying, you'll be adding value and they'll notice it and they'll appreciate it. And it will make a difference in your career. And I could really see that after he had mentioned that, how true it was.
1: Again, Now back into how people behave in their personal psychologies and even back to Myers-Briggs, there are many people in finance and accounting that are more introverted than extroverted. I would say the percentage who are more introverted and extroverted is probably more introverted. It's super hard for a more introverted, analytical, left brain person to be comfortable with communicating. So this is the struggle. Working on that, not on the spreadsheet, is what I would encourage most people to do.
0: Learning to communicate is critical for finance. Frankly, it's critical in life. It's a good skill for everybody to have. But if you want to influence and have that seat at the table, you have to be able to communicate. You could be brilliant in the spreadsheet, brilliant in your analysis. I've told the story a number of times. And the one that sticks out to me most is I did a presentation to the CFO on something and it went terrible. And we got all done. And I had asked my CFO what went wrong. And his comment to me really struck out. He goes, your analysis was brilliant, your presentation lacked. And I was like, yep, I forgot about the last mile. I focused so much on the analysis and getting everybody else aligned and buttoned up. that I thought it would just be a shoe-in with the CFO and he hadn't heard about it for six months and was lost. And so he thought it was a terrible idea. And it really was a defining moment for me to remember the importance of communicating. It really hit home for me.
1: And, and I, I, this is a lot of my practice on how to communicate because many people, in whatever subject matter they are, think that everyone else thinks like they do. <laughs> and fp a people think at the very detailed level, line item level. It took me 10 years into my career not to show up with the insight and kind of build to it after 10 minutes and explain to people, and this line item, I built this row, I built this column, and this connects to this, and no one cares. They, they kept saying to me, and I wasn't listening, I just want to know what the answer is. And I'm like, well, no, you don't, because you got to know how I got to the answer, otherwise you're going to question it. And so I didn't meet them where they were. They trusted my analysis, but you need to start with the answer and then tell them why, not build up to the answer and 10 minutes later have them be lost. The analysis was brilliant, but the communication lost them when they turned off their phones.
0: I, um, I think I'm having flashbacks to my career because I dealt with the same thing. It took me a long time to learn. They want the big picture. Don't get into every little detail with them. As, if they trust you and the answer makes sense, give them up front what you think. And if they want to go into the details, then do it. But don't start with the details. And I was very guilty of that.
1: You're peeling the onion. You're peeling the onion layer by layer to get down to the core. You, you don't start with the core and try to wrap an onion around it, which is what we most do.
0: I agree. So, you know, next question here for you, as you and I were chatting the other week kind of in preparation for the interview, you talked quite a bit about, you know, developing good relationships. And you mentioned part of that is building the relationship upfront, developing it from the very beginning. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what you mean by that and share an example of how you did that in your career?
1: Sure. And I, and I coach this a lot today and because people skip this step. I would highly recommend what I learned to do is start, and I, and I learned this from my own mentors, start with just a, a listening tour. Start with being very curious and asking whoever you're going to be working with at whatever level you're working with them. How's it going for you between you and finance department today? What's going well? What's not going well? A series of questions. Do you have the data you need to make the decisions? Oh, you don't? Well, like, well I have it here but not there. What metrics do you use? Well, I don't have any metrics. Like, Develop a series of, of standard questions that will be helpful for you to partner with that person. But just go in without any judgment and do this to as many leaders around the company as possible to get a pulse of how the finance team is showing up or how the FP&A Role is showing up. What's useful? What's not? You know, you'll get answers like, "Oh, the reports are too detailed. I really can't make sense of them." Or, "Or uh, they don't come out in time. I can't make my decisions fast enough." But this is the signal. What you're looking for is where is the tension in the partnership between finance and that and that org? How can you better serve them? How can you do go faster with more clarity? Developing a relationship means starting with a conversation, not starting with a spreadsheet. You do not start with a spreadsheet. You start with a conversation of the business, how they think about the business, because you're going to learn something as well. If you're really good at this and you can practice this many times as an FPNA person, guess what happens when you ask a lot of questions and you develop, I just want to take you out for coffee or lunch. Do you mind? You're going to learn about how they think about engineering or how they think about marketing or how what they're, you're going to be, start becoming an expert because you're just listening to them talk about their expertise. Every once in a while, you interject, well, how can finance help you make that decision better? And so start with a conversation. Don't start with a spreadsheet. And then pa- we're really good at pattern matching as analysts. Pattern match the problems. And then design a better product to fix the problems. And then follow through.
0: Thank you for adding that last part. The follow through is, is critical. Sometimes we uh, get everything else done and don't follow through and it falls apart. So that's a huge one. I really like what you said there of start with the listening tour. I'm going to steal that idea. I really like the way you uh you phrased that there. And then the second one is don't start the com- don't start with a spreadsheet, start with a conversation. And that really leads into the next question I think perfectly here. Right? We've heard a lot lately that a big part of being good at FP&A is telling the story, right? Data storytelling. I mean, I have a bunch of books back there around data and telling the story and things like that. So how does that play a role in fp being a good piz- business partner? Why is that you know so critical to be able to be a good storyteller? Isn't it enough to just be a good analyst?
1: So the short answer is no, you have to be a storyteller. There are many ways to describe what being a s- storyteller really means, and I'll take a couple different angles and cracks at it. But ultimately, a storyteller is answering the question, why? That's one angle. It's why is this happening and what's going to happen if this continues to happen. We are human beings. We've, sit, we've sat around the campfire and we've told stories for years that convey data and information in a visual and a verbal format. It's how our brains are wired from a DNA perspective. We hear about you know the hunters almost getting killed by the tigers, but we weren't there. But we feel like we're there in the story because it was so visually told with pictures that they get put in our mind and words that get put in our mind that we actually feel it with a connection. So storytelling is the fastest way to connect to your audience, your your customer's brain, because you do it through words and a visual and imagining, imagining the future. In our case, imagining the future and working backwards. You have to be a good storyteller because what is F, P, and A? It's planning the future. It's analyzing the present and planning the future. It's not accounting, which is just mostly the present, and there's nothing wrong with that either. It's being accurate and timely and consistent. But FPNA in particular starts at the future and tries to predict the future and tries to take the current situation and say, What should we do more of and what should we do less of? And if we did more of that, maybe we can end up in a better future for ourselves as a product, as a team, as a company. Um, And as you're telling this story, the classic storytelling elements are, if you think about any book or any movie, there's someone doing the activity, there's the protagonist, there's the antagonist, there's the competitor, right? There's the drama and the conflict if we get it wrong, that's risk, There's the uh, Cinderella moment when we get it right and there's joy, right? But we're all, it's talking about emotions and figuring out with the data that we have in hand, are we going to be happy or sad if we end up in this future? And once you can shift your brain to storytelling the data, what story is the data telling you? And the data is just the plot, but what story is it telling you? And make it more visual, make it more verbal, you know, make it more punchy. You know, don't make a five-hour movie, make a 90-minute movie. No one wants to sit through a five-hour movie. It's the same movie. Make it more action-oriented.
0: Don't don't make it a long documentary. You want to get to the point, but yeah, put that story to it. And it's a great point of helping it come to life. And there should, you know, the emotional attachment that you tell with stories. Like, right, I think... Everybody who listens to this, I know when I listen to it, as you are describing Netflix and the different conveyor belts, I'm picturing in my mind and I can see this drum, you're like, well, and the CD is going to be destroyed. And right. I could relate to all that as you're going. And so there's something to be said of just having that story. One of my favorite books that I really like on the business side about stories is Kinder Hall wrote a book called Stories That Stick. And she talks about almost no company that sells well. In fact, pretty, I'd argue they're not out there. They don't sit there and tell you about all the technology. They tell you a story and make you feel how the technology is going to make your life better. So even with data and the insights and the recommendations, you're trying to help them see how it will solve a pain, how it will make the company better, how it will continue to do something that's gone well, whatever it might be, right? That's really the goal there with those stories. Absolutely. We just have a couple more questions here. One we like to ask guests is, can you tell me about a time in your career when you experience what we'll call a strategic moment, you know, an, a strategic insight that later empowered you to drive change within the organization.
1: There are several, several successes and several failures. I don't know which one, where, where I want to start of not actually not doing something, but a strategic moment, as you say it, is you have to actually break down what the word strategy actually is. And strategy is a choice. Strategy is choosing this over that it's going in this direction, not that direction. many people confuse strategy with theoretical we could do this no strategy is a choice we're going this direction follow me you know I'm the leader or we're the leader and we're going to the North Pole, not the South Pole and we're gonna you know and, and our goal to get there is to do something but it means saying no to everything else so many strategic inflection points over the life of my career. And I'll just hit on a couple early days all the way to present day. I clearly remember the moment at Intuit when we were were the number one personal finance software leader with Quicken. We were killing the market. We just made a product that was faster and easier to use. And it was just so much better. A check looked like a check on the screen. A reg- checkbook register looked like a checkbook register on the screen. We were the number 40th product to market. And we were the only product that presented the checkbook as it is in real life. Imagine that. By the way, no VCs funded uh, into it until it was profitable either because they said, I've seen 40 other companies and we're not going to fund you. So this is, a, this is another pattern. Once we went public, we were selling about 2 million units a year of software. Immediately, it was like, oh, there's a market here. Microsoft was trying to compete with Manager Money. Most of your guests don't remember this. You don't need to. Computer Associates had their own product, everyone had a product. But because they had money and we didn't, we were trying to go public to have cash to grow the business. They had hundreds of millions of dollars. They decided we're going to give away a million units of Microsoft money for free to the first million customers. We had just sold 2 million units. It was early days with software. Computer associates within a week turned around and said, we'll give away our million units for free. We're trying to sell our units for you know, $49.99, $69.99 to, to fund our business. There was a panic moment. Like, we're going to be out of business. Turns out, our strategy was to double down and have a marketing campaign, which was more like, okay, go ahead, try the rest. You'll come back to the best, right? Try the rest. We're the best. Like, we're, we're okay. We're better. And we leaned into it. And sure enough, what it backfired on them because now you had 2 million people who had never tried personal finance before. They sat around a dinner table with friends and said, have you tried this Computer Associates, this Microsoft product? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to use Quicken. All of a sudden, our sales doubled and tripled overnight. So you can turn fear into opportunity. How to turn fear into opportunity? Same thing happened at Mozilla when Google came out with the Chrome browser after four years of us having Firefox to ourselves, recreating the browser market. We had 30% market share. And Chrome came out and said, oh, there's a market here. We're going to build our own browsers off your open source technology. And... The, the initial fear was we're dead. Eventually, you know, they did win with their big dollars, but we held our own for the longest time because I, I remember standing up in front of Mozilla and telling everybody, um, I've seen this movie before. Uh, everyone's going to try. We just have to be better than Chrome. Our goal is to be better than Chrome. Now, what we failed to do, that's thats the... And so we it was a rallying cry. We turned fear into, into a doubling down. What we failed to do at Mozilla was lean into mobile as fast as we should have. What we failed to do at Mozilla is build services in the cloud where we should have. We just we stayed with being a desktop browser. And that was the strategic error.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate you sharing both an error and where things went well. Because I like to say, you know, failure is just a learning experience, right? Failure leads to success. I heard someone say is if you look at it as a learning experience. We should all not fear failure. Sometimes it's painful but we should strive to learn from it. So I appreciate you sharing both sides of that, the good and the bad.
1: I think you should design for that as an fp person. You should make recommendations that aren't 100% for sure. You should actually design for 85, I say 85, 15, 85% success and take the 15% of what's not working with your recommendation as fp person and course correct strategy, choose a different path on the, we thought this was the right way to, but, but design for failure because then you're designing for learning. As long as you're still 85% correct, you're going to be great, but do not try to be 100% and then turn that 85% to 90%. Learn from the 10% error rate, make it a 5% error rate and strive to be five nines. You'll never get there, but design for failure and design for course correcting and it just opens up a realm of opportunities and a realm of creativity. You get away from this trying to be perfect.
0: I like that. It's a great point of designing for failure. And I know there's a lot of organizations that have started doing that in different ways and celebrating it, recognizing how important it is. If you could offer one piece of advice to someone starting a career today in FP&A, what would be that one piece of advice?
1: Connection is the new currency. Being connected to people through what you do, you happen to be an FP&A person. And we talked about this a lot in this podcast. But being connected to your customer and being as close to your customer as possible is the holy grail of any product, whether you're an FPA person or not. Learn to establish relationships with your customer, with the people that you work with. Relationships and connections come first. You can be the smartest person in the room, but if nobody trusts you, i.e. is connected to you, it doesn't matter. And connection is the, is, is your currency as a as someone starting out in career today. It's not what you do, it's how you do it and how you partner with people.
0: Great advice. Thank you for that. So, last question if someone wants to get a hold of you, what would be the best way to do that?
1: LinkedIn. Hit me up on LinkedIn. Hit me up at uh, jimcookbenchboard.com uh, or just uh, at cookflix. You see the play on words there on Twitter. Yeah, that's my cookflix. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, I mean, you'll find me. And I'll put all that in the show notes
0: along with, I'll make sure I get the name of those uh, books and the documentary from you and anything else you want to share, we can stick in the show notes. So thank you so much for joining us and sharing some of your experiences. I know I learned a few things and I'm sure our audience did. So thanks again, Jim.
1: Paul, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.